Welcome. Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. My name is Donald Meisel, minister to and with the congregation and moderator of these forums. For ten years now, eight to nine times a year, we look together of a Thursday noon at a key issue facing our society, our world, which issue has strong ethical overtones. And we do it with the help of a guest, knowledgeable, experienced, committed. Today that guest is Olara A. Otunu, and his topic, Africa, Between Uncertainties and Hope. January 1st of this year, it was announced that Ambassador Otunu is the new president of the International Peace Academy. The IPA is an independent international institution that conducts a program of training, research, and workshops in peacemaking and the settlement of international conflicts. It is based uh, in New York. Mr. Otunu is a distinguished international statesman who is widely acclaimed for his diplomatic and negotiating skills. While serving as Uganda's Minister of Foreign Affairs in the mid-1980s, he played a leading role in Uganda peace talks, which culminated in the Nairobi Peace Agreement. During his tenure as Uganda's permanent representative to the United Nations, 1980-85, he performed a variety of functions at different times. President of the Security Council, Chairman of the Contact Group on Global Negotiations, Chairman of the UN Commission on Human Rights, Chairman of the Credentials Committee of the General Assembly, Vice President of the General Assembly. He has participated in many studies on international security and cooperation. Currently, he's a member of the Group on Rethinking International Governance. Mr. Otunu's areas of special interest include human rights, the future of Africa, North-South relations, and indeed the work of the UN. Mr. Otunu is a lawyer by training. In addition to studying in his native Uganda, he did work at Oxford University in England and Harvard University in this country. Ambassador Otunu, we welcome you here today, and we look forward to what you have to say about Africa between uncertainties and hope. Welcome. Dr. Maisel, Mr. James Binger, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for being here this afternoon. I feel very honored to be here as a participant in this very distinguished series known as the Westminster Town Hall Forum. I must also confess to being particularly moved finding myself in the middle of a sanctuary of such exquisite beauty. 
I'm going to speak to you about a paradox. For Africa is a paradox. Here is a continent that is particularly rich, but whose inhabitants are the poorest on earth. It is a continent that is richly endowed with extensive mineral wealth, rich agricultural land, favorable climate, water resources, and a very resilient people. Yet, out of a total of 42 countries that are classified as least developed in the world, 28 are from Africa, which is about half the total number of countries in the continent. It is this paradox which explains the title of my talk, Between Uncertainties and Hope. Let me begin with the areas of uncertainties. Perhaps the most important challenge facing African countries today is how to transform the ethnic communities diverse inherited from the colonial boundaries into national states. There is, in effect, a crisis of identity. The political identity of an African is rather like a three-tier edifice. At the top of the structure is an overarching sense of continental identity which Africans share. Thus, they can all say without any hesitation, we are Africans. At the base of the edifice lies a sense of ethnic identity. This is a powerful force that enables most Africans to proclaim with complete confidence, we are Kikuyu or we are Yoruba. The crisis arises in the middle of the edifice. That is at the national level. Those who can truly affirm with feeling and conviction that we are Ugandans are still too few, which is to say that the sense of national identity is still the least developed of all the levels of identity within the African personality. This problem goes back to the European partitioning of Africa in the 19th century. Colonial boundaries were drawn without any regard for local considerations. They were determined solely by the logic of the rivalries among the European powers. This was compounded by the fact that in the face of African resistance to their rule, the colonial powers resorted to the strategy of playing off one ethnic group against another, the better to rule them. 
At another level, the economic level, the colonial administration bequeathed another unfortunate legacy that would haunt Africa later. This is the phenomenon of an even development within countries. This is often marked by striking disparities between the different regions within a country, between the regions on which the benefits of education, commerce, infrastructure, and general economic development have been bestowed, and those regions that were virtually neglected. It is this combined effect of the policy of divide and rule and the legacy of an even development which have set the stage for the internecine conflicts that have bedeviled so many African countries after their independence. In some cases, such as Chad, Nigeria during the Civil War, Ethiopia, Angola, Sudan, Somalia, and my own country, Uganda, these conflicts have assumed a particularly tragic dimension. To be sure, this was possible because after independence, some African leaders, instead of correcting the legacies left by colonialism, adopted the same method of manipulating ethnic loyalties in order to gain or retain power. The result has been devastating for Africa. Since 1960, Africa has experienced no less than 17 wars, 11 of which are still raging on to this day. The loss of life due to these wars is estimated at 6 million people, not to speak of material damage, which has been colossal. African refugees today number no less than four and a half million. Meanwhile, it is clear that the recurring famine situations in some parts of Africa, such as in Angola, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Mozambique, are due in no small measure to the continuation of wars in those countries. Clearly, these internecine conflicts have become a kind of political hemorrhage, steadily draining the collective strength of the African peoples. I am convinced that the only way to get out of this situation is by employing two simple tools. The one is political compromise, the other is democratic practice. This means that the fact of ethnic diversities can be fully recognized while national unity is nurtured and promoted. It means also resisting all temptations for any kind of ethnic hegemony, 
or the domination of one ethnic group over others. And finally, it means adopting measures not unlike the experience of affirmative action in this country, which is aimed to redress the imbalances of an even development. This brings me to the second challenge facing Africa. It is the challenge of democracy. It is how to ensure two things at the same time. On the one hand, that there is a mechanism in place through which the people can participate in making decisions that shape their destiny. And on the other, that leaders are made accountable for their actions. Here too, the experience of the last 30 years have been marked by deep disappointment. Few are the countries where there exists a genuine process of democracy. It is a measure of this failure that there are today no less than 25 militarily controlled governments on the African continent. Now, I do not say that democracy is a panacea for all of Africa's ills, nor do I claim that it is necessarily the most efficient vehicle for achieving development. But I do say that it is necessary, a necessary condition even, for reversing the process of regression which is now taking place on the continent. For without it, there is no accountability. And without accountability, there is waste. There is corruption, and above all, there is the inevitable abuse of power. To this picture of political malaise must be added the challenge of Africa's grave economic situation. There is no doubt that African governments bear a significant share of responsibility for this state of affairs. It is now freely conceded that misconceived policies in the past, misallocations of resources, false priorities and downright corruption have all contributed to the present sorry state of African economies. But I must say it equally clearly that the situation was complicated from the very beginning by the role that colonialism ordained for Africa in the world economy a role which consists almost exclusively of the export of minerals and agricultural commodities, the prices of which are determined not by the producers in Africa, but principally by the consumers in Europe and North America. While export earnings have been experiencing a dramatic 
downward spiral, the cost of machinery that Africa needs for her development have, on the other hand, been rising. Over the last five years alone, Africa's export revenue has fallen by 45%. This situation is rather like the frustration of a person who must run several times over, several times faster, simply in order to remain on the same spot. How can we, in these circumstances, speak of national development plans over a long period of time? Africa's economic situation has been aggravated by three other major factors. The debt burden, the high population growth rates, and rapid degradation of the environment, especially the spread of the desert. Now a word about population. Today, Africa's population stands at about 522 million people, with an average growth rate of 3%, which makes it the highest growth rate in the world. By the year 2000, the population is projected to exceed 900 million people. This is therefore an issue of great concern both within and outside Africa. Indeed, the question is often asked, especially in the West, how is it that in spite of all the family planning facilities that have been made available to the continent, there are no major signs of the impact on the ground. Well, the answer lies in the very specific social and cultural factors that determine attitudes towards family planning in Africa. Take, for example, the problem of infant mortality, the rate of which is still much too high in Africa, being somewhere in the range of over 220 children per thousand. In some parts of the world, in some parts of Africa, especially on the, con the countryside, it is almost possible to measure the impact of infant mortality by the number of children who still bear fatalistic names. In my part of the continent, for example, there are still too many children with names such as Ayiko, meaning I have buried many before her, or Otor, meaning he too will go like the others before him. In these circumstances, how can you tell a mother about family planning? A mother will most likely want to have as many children as possible in the hope that some may survive to be adults. 
Moreover, in many rural societies, children still serve as a form of social security for their parents in old age. I remember as a young boy growing up in the village, a constant refrain from parents to the effect, and without my children, they would say, who will take care of me in old age? In addition, in most of Africa, agriculture, which is the main occupation on the countryside, is still, unlike in this country, a very labor-intensive affair. The more children you have, the more hands there are to till the land. Moreover, in some societies, children are still regarded as a status symbol. So the more children a family has, the more prestige it enjoys within the community. All these factors therefore indicate that the question of population cannot be treated in isolation from the general social and economic context of the society. It means that without a higher and general level of education for both women and children, it'll, it'll be different on this problem. If I have till now dwelt on uncertainties, it is because those uncertainties dominate the scene in Africa. But there are reasons for hope. Let me refer to some of them briefly. First of all, after 30 years of what one might call muddling through, there are signs that African leaders are taking stock of that experience. That there is a new willingness to learn from the errors of the past. That there is a new disposition to compromise, that there is especially evidence of new approaches to development issues. The rigid ideological models of yesteryears are being discarded in favor of pragmatic policies that can work. The second reason for hope concerns the possibility of resolving some of the conflicts to which I referred earlier. The improved international climate has resulted in the significant disengagement of the superpowers from the theaters of conflict in Africa. This should present new opportunities for Africans to seek peaceful resolution of those conflicts. This, engagement by the, this disengagement by the superpowers is also important for another reason. For the first time in a very long period, it is possible to view local conflicts on their own terms and blurred by the prism of East-West perspectives. This is important because without a proper appreciation of the local roots of these conflicts, any efforts at solutions are bound to fail. A third factor of hope 
concerns recent developments in southern Africa, the independence of Namibia, the reforms underway within the Republic of South Africa, including the release of Nelson Mandela and the, banning of, the unbanning of political parties, as well as the relative detente which is now in place between South Africa and the neighboring states, have all contributed to transforming this part of Africa from a region of despair to one of considerable hope. And the implications of this development are of immense importance to the whole of Africa. Finally, another reason for hope lies in the fact that there is movement, some movement, towards genuine democracy in Africa. The struggle for democracy is, of course, not new in Africa. But what is new is the fact that the democratic revolutions in East and Central Europe have given considerable boost to the course of democracy worldwide, including in Africa. As President Omar Bongo of Gabon said recently, I quote, the wind from the east is shaking the coconut tree. The African people, therefore, more boldly than ever before, are demanding two things. Free elections in the context of multi-party formations. In conclusion, I should like to say this. Africa is an ancient continent, but very young in its present configuration. 30 years of national independence is but a brief moment in the span of history. Its present condition is therefore in part an evolutionary phase what Alexander Herzen called in the context of mid-19th century Russia, I quote, a building that still has about it the smell of fresh plaster, where everything is experimental in a state of transition, where people are always making changes, many of which are for the worse but all of which are at least changes, end of quote. The course of history is neither on Africa's side nor against her. The responsibility for turning the tide of history in Africa's favor therefore rests primarily, although not exclusively, on the shoulders of the African peoples themselves, and in particularly on their leaders and the youth. The task of economic and political reconstruction is above all about making independence a meaningful reality for the African peoples. This challenge is going to be considerably more demanding than the earlier challenge against colonial rule. 
But if Africa's present outlook is fraught with uncertainties, that is only a part of the continent's reality. There are other aspects of the African reality which are just as important and valid. The resilience of its peoples in adversity. The determination of its youth to take charge of the destiny and reconstruct a brighter future. And the increasing readiness of its leaders to learn from the mistakes of the past. Again, like in Herzen's Russia, Africa too has no belief in its present condition. It may well be that in the fullness of time, Africa's present agony could turn out to be like the death of a seed, a process that eventually brings forth new life, a renewal that will be capable of redeeming for the African peoples the earlier dreams inspired by independence. Africa's leaders and its youth understand well and accept this challenge. This is the underlying basis of the present efforts at reconstruction, and it is the reason for my hope, in spite of all the uncertainties that surround us at present. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ambassador Otuno. Thank you for being very straightforward about the uncertainties and very upfront about high hopes. I don't think I'll soon forget, uh, among other things, the tragic names that you indicate that African women give to some of their children. We, we come now to a break in the program, and in the event uh, that you don't find a yellow card in your pew, in your pew card rack, use an envelope or anything that's there to uh, send forward your questions. Let me uh, indicate to our radio audience, and it is a large one, uh, that you have been listening to Ambassador Laura A. Otuno of Uganda who is presently president of the International Peace Academy. He has been speaking to us about Africa between uncertainties and hope. Our co-sponsor today is Toby Brill Confections. Uh, we do give opportunity to the radio audience to send in questions, to phone them in. Uh, the number here at Westminster is 332 34 to one. We have the, uh, the, the privilege today of, of another special guest on the platform, namely Mr. James Binger, who is chairman of the board of the International Peace Academy, which academy our guest, Mr. Otunu, uh, serves as president. Uh, 
Mr. Binger is going to tell us a little bit about that academy at this time and then pose the first question. Mr. Binger, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Mazur. Thank you, Olara. We're proud that Ambassador Otunu is leading the IPA, of which I would like to give you a thumbnail sketch. It's a small, quite low-profile, not-for-profit organization. We work with the United Nations, we work with regional organizations, and governments worldwide. We conduct off-the-record workshops, training sessions, consultations and research with the objective of putting into practice the skills of peacekeeping and peacemaking. We're governed by 40 directors from 18 different countries. Thank you for the opportunity to speak about the IPA. You have a question, sir? I have a question, but... Mm -hmm. Just pose it there and uh, then we'll have our speakers step forward. I'd like Ambassador Otunu to enlarge a bit on the, the hope that he expressed coming from the progress in South Africa. What, uh, what does he foresee there? How will it affect the other associated countries? Thank you. Mr. Otunu? Well, thank you very much. Um, I suppose there are three levels of implications for the situation developing now in South Africa. The first, of course, is that Namibia is now independent and gained independence through a peaceful process. The second is that I think South Africa has now got over the worst period in terms of the possibility of an all-out war between the races between the blacks and the whites. One cannot say how long it will take to negotiate a settlement, but I think they are over the worst period and it's a matter of time before apartheid is dismantled. But the third aspect of this, which has implications for the countries of the region and the rest of Africa, is of course that in a situation where there is no longer destabilization within the region. And with the energies of Africa is not focused on the ending of apartheid, everybody within the region of Southern Africa and elsewhere on the continent can then concentrate on what really matters, which is social and economic development. So it is in that sense that the development in South Africa will have far-reaching implications for the whole continent. Mm -hmm. A question about, uh, would you care to say anything about Mr. Nelson Mandela and his part in, in uh, what's uh, evolving in South Africa and his future influence? I suppose the importance of Mr. Mandela is that he has personified as a symbol the struggle of the people of South Africa to end apartheid. And in history, it often makes a difference to have a weight as heavy as that put on the shoulder of one person. And this is why the release of Nelson Mandela has come with it a whole series of reforms and a new level 
of, um, of impetus as far as the process of ending apartheid is concerned. So I expect that not only in the near future, but the long term, Mr. Mandela's role will be crucial in the negotiation to end apartheid and hopefully in the post-apartheid South Africa. Thank you. Uh, we, we're not going to spend the entire time on South Africa, but there are a number of questions in that arena. Uh, please comment on divestment, its influence on policy in South Africa, and any suggestions for U.S. companies regarding doing business in South Africa, that whole agenda? Well, certainly there is no doubt that the reforms which have now been undertaken by the South African government was largely influenced by the pinch which the South African economy began to feel as a result of disinvestment and various sanction measures by various countries, especially the countries of the West. That is why Mr. Mandela insists to this day that as much as the reforms are appreciated, they are only the beginning of a process. And that if that process is to be carried to its logical conclusion, it is important that the pressures which have produced reforms should continue until apartheid has actually been ended. Thank you. Another question. Do you see any parallels between countries in Eastern Europe, given their struggle to make something of their new one freedom, and the struggle in African countries to make uh, independence a meaningful reality following the struggle against colonial rule? Well, there are certainly areas of links. Let me begin with the negative, which is this, that uh, clearly development in Eastern Europe have captured the attention of the Western world in a very special way, of the whole world. The construction of a unified European market and the reconstruction of Eastern Europe is going to demand a lot of political attention and a lot of material resources. And there is already anxiety in developing countries, especially in Africa, which is largely marginalized as things stand that the need for more resources to go to Eastern Europe may well take place at the expense of Africa. So that is the, the negative side, if you like. But the positive side is what I mentioned in my talk, that the process in Eastern Europe has actually globalized the process of democratization in the world. It's given a new lease of legitimacy. It's given a new boost of confidence democratic movements wherever they exist in the world. And Africa is no exception. But there's a difference though. The scope of the democratic change in Europe and its orderliness and its speed was determined partly by the presence of the Soviet scaffolding, by what Mr. Gorbachev was able to do and not do with the countries under, you, under his influence in Eastern Europe. There is no similar scaffolding over Africa. And therefore, the scope is likely to be limited. The process is likely to be less orderly. 
and the speed much less fast in the movement towards dem dem democratic reforms. Thank you very much. How do you, this is from the audience, how do you both as an individual and as a representative of African peoples view foreign intervention, and then it goes on to say, is U.S. aid appreciated by Africa or would the pr people prefer to be independent? Well, you know, we, we live in a world in which two things have to be combined. The desire to be independent, which means to have a certain measure of control over your own destiny, but at the same time, the fact, which is simply a reality of a world in which everything is more or less connected. It is true for Africans as it is for the Americans. It is true in the area of trade as it is true in the, in the, in the situation of the environment. The air which they breathe in Africa, the same air which finds its way here, so pollution here affects the Africans. It is true in the movement of peoples across borders. If things don't go well in Mexico, it doesn't really matter how high a wall you put up between Mexico and the U.S., people will flow here anyway. So there's a certain interconnectedness in the world. It's a question of drawing a balance between allowing a particular people to determine their own destiny without revoking the need to remain connected within the context of interdependence. And for the African people, the desire is to be independent, but at the same time to benefit from a world community which uh, is very much connected. Mm -hmm. This question has come from the radio audience. Uh, first, the caller would like to congratulate the speaker on his work with the realities of Africa. And two, what have the African leaders done about the conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea and what do they think about the Ethiopian war? Well, as I mentioned in, uh, in my talk, it is very much my hope that now that the Soviet Union and the USA have relatively disengaged from the Horn of Africa, where they were very involved before, and while they were involved, it was very difficult to make any headway in terms of resolving the conflict, that now, the local roots of the conflicts will become clearer in Ethiopia, as in Sudan, as in Somalia. And that in that context, African efforts in the first instance to resolve the conflict will become more useful. Already there are various initiatives, both within the sub-region of the Horn of Africa, some of it involving the OEU in Addis Ababa, some of it the chairman of the OEU, to mediate between the various parties. I cannot say for sure how long it will take to resolve the conflict in Sudan or in Ethiopia, but it is at least encouraging that the process of negotiations, of contacts among the parties in conflict is well in progress, and that there are many parties within Africa and outside who are helping in this, uh, in this process. Two questions uh, gathering around the UN. Uh, has the role of the UN for African countries been mostly constructive? Will the UN be able to help solve the conflicts in Africa, or are they unable uh, to take sides? 
Well, the role of the UN has been very constructive, mainly in the area of economic and social development, because we often do not realize how much of the infrastructure of the United Nations is to do with economic and social development. I mentioned earlier the problem of infant mortality, for example. Well, nobody is doing more to reduce infant mortality than UNICEF, which is part of the UN system. Smallpox, which used to, to kill millions of people in the world, especially in Africa, was literally eradicated by the World Health Organization, which is part of the UN system. So the UN is active in all sorts of fields within Africa. Uh, in relation to conflict resolution, the UN has a constraint because it cannot enter directly into internal conflicts within a, a country, except if the parties, including the government in power, ask it to be involved. There are examples of this already. The UN is in some measure involved in discussions in Cambodia, which are an internal conflict. It is involved in Nicaragua, which are an internal conflict. So there's a role for the UN but it has to move cautiously. Is there any committee or organization within Africa where every country's leaders gather to discuss their country's problems? Well, there is of course the Organization of African Unity which brings together all the independent countries of Africa, which means excluding only South Africa, the Republic of South Africa. Now, one of the reasons why I'm very happy about what is happening in South Africa is that it will free the OAU to divert its attention precisely to the question of economic and social development. Because up till now, the main item on the agenda has of course been decolonization and the eradication of apartheid in South Africa. Secondly, I hope very much that more and more the OEU will be sufficiently bold to begin to put on the agenda some of the issues which are strictly internal, but the magnitude of which can no longer be ignored, or the effect of which necessarily draw neighboring countries into conflicts. And this applies, for example, for the, in the various conflicts in the Horn of Africa. Ambassador, could you say a few words about religious conflict in Africa, particularly the Sudan? Well, fortunately, I think I can say with confidence that this has not, in fact, been a major problem in Africa. As compared to other regions of the world, it is not absent, but it's not been a major problem in Africa, even where you have Christians and Muslims coexisting, whether you've got Catholics and Protestants, whether you've got people who practice African religions and so on. The main exception, I suppose, being Sudan. But even in Sudan, we have to be careful that the religious element is only one small part of a much more complex problem which involves the issue of uneven development, to which I referred earlier, the disparity between the northern part of the country and the southern part of the country, which is not a religious issue. It involves a question of democratic practice or the absence of it, 
about which those in the north who are Muslims and Arab feel as strongly as those in the south who are not Muslims and are black Africans. So there are many aspects to the problem of which the question of Sharia law, Islamic law, is only one and probably a small part of it. Another question from the floor. Do you have an immediate short-term solution to the problem of starvation on the African continent? Unfortunately, there is no quick fix to it. But there are certain concrete measures which can be taken. I tried to say earlier that the question of starvation has been aggravated by the conflicts. And so it's not an accident that it is in the areas where conflicts are raging that you find famine is especially serious. So doing something about the conflicts will already mean doing something about famine. Secondly, at the level of policies which have been, as I said before, somewhat rigid in the past, there's need for change to make sure that more can be produced locally within African countries, to make sure that things can move more easily between one part of, country, of the country to another. Because one of the tragedies in African countries has been that you can have a lot of food produced in one part, but at a critical time, it may be more difficult to get that food to the part of the country affected than to fly in aid from Europe. Because of the lack of infrastructure, and cross-country communication within these countries. And this can be tackled in a practical way. Another question from the floor. Please comment on AIDS. What is being done to address the issue in Africa? Well, um, the African continent, I suppose, is quite seriously affected by the problem of AIDS. I do not have any comparative figures, for example, to show how much Africa is affected as compared to, say, North America or Europe. In any case, the figures are very much contested. But what is clear is that African countries are very badly affected. And there are many factors which contribute to this. I think in a society where the health facilities are poor, where communication is bad, where general public education is low, AIDS is more likely to have a ravaging effect than in a society where those things are not the case. The countries especially affected along the corridor, which is called the, the, the Africa Highway Corridor, which is mainly sort of from Eastern Africa going towards Central and part of Southern, Southern Africa. But I'm happy to say that on the whole, most African governments have moved from a position of being very shy about talking about AIDS to mounting public campaigns to try to educate the public and to try, therefore, to reduce the spread of AIDS. They have also generally appealed for support from outside to make it possible to abandon the use of needles um, because in many, many African countries, the, the needles which are used are not disposable needles. And so part of the, the, the campaign which is now going on to help African countries is to get more disposable needles into the countries so that less people can be infected by the use of the same needles over a period of time. 
So there are concrete measures which are being taken, but uh, it is a serious and uh, very worrying situation all over the world, but especially in Africa. Comment here. Have most of the leaders in today's African countries been educated in Europe or the, or the U.S.? And, and what, if so, what is the impact of that, good or bad? Well, that varies. I suppose the earlier generation of leaders tended to be people who were educated in Europe, uh, more or less exclusively. But I think the newer generation of leaders are partly educated in Africa or exclusively in Africa, but also quite a few are educated in the U.S. because the road to the United States basically opened with independence in Africa. And so a lot of students in the early 60s came and had their college and their graduate education in this country. So among those who are now running affairs in Africa, yes, you'll find very many who speak with a somewhat, uh, with a tinge of American accent in their English. <laughs> At what government level does the Peace Academy operate? Who do governments send to your meetings? Well, um, you know, we work very closely with the United Nations, with governments, but also with private individuals with academics, with the parties involved in a conflict. Let me give you just an example. We've just had uh, a very important consultation organized by the Academy on Cambodia, which was held in Canada barely a week ago. And to that meeting, we brought all the parties in the internal conflict, the ASEAN countries who were very involved, all the five permanent members of the Security Council, and some independent personalities. And in this informal setting, we tried to explore together some of the options that might help break the impasse which now exists in the negotiations, as well as trying to explore together what role the UN could play in a possible settlement, implementing a settlement in, the, in Cambodia. But all this is done in a very informal, unofficial way, our contribution being the ideas which are generated which ideas can then be taken up by those who are more officially involved in the process of negotiations uh, and hope that they can be helpful. That's the way we contribute. With a European common market almost a reality, do you see an African common market uh, on the horizon? Well, certainly one of the main problems which has contributed to Africa's economic situation is the way in which the continent is fragmented. Little small countries, some of whom are not viable economically, and the trend in the world clearly is towards pooling resources together. You've got in the US a huge market. You've got in Europe now the effort to form a common market. The countries of the Pacific are pooling together. So Africa too will have to find a way of pooling its resources first maybe on a sub-regional level, and then at a continental level. There are organizations which exist at sub-regional levels. They are not as effective as they should be, but there is work going on, yes, to see if uh, a larger pool, economic pool, could be formed in Africa. As I said, there is uh, no choice but to move in that direction if Africa is to survive 
and to be able to compete in the international economic system. From the floor, it begins, dear Olara Otuno, Africa's problems are enormous. As an African student here at the university, I believe the only way these problems can be solved is to form a supranational state within, with one government, one economic system, etc., etc. Please comment on this statement. I, I agree with the sentiment expressed. I, I don't necessarily share the precise model which is being uh, presented. I don't think we need to do away with the present units or the present governments because it's difficult. You run immediately against uh, the problem of the sovereignties which are there in place. But one can go the European route where the countries, small or large, remain with their own boundaries and territories and retain whatever symbol they wish to retain of their sovereignty. But where at a practical level there is a huge market which pulls the resources of the entire continent together. Africa can go that route, it's easier to achieve, less practical problems, and the results would be the same. We're nearing the end of our time together. Uh, let me remind the radio audience that they have, in fact, been hearing Ambassador Olara Otuna of Uganda and President of the International Peace Academy. And we've been proud to have him as our guest. Uh, as a parting word, I can't help but recall that several years ago, uh, I was visiting Westminster Abbey in, in London and came across in the middle aisle uh, David Livingston's tomb, the man who spent 30 years in Africa uh, working, among other things, to uh, eliminate the slave trade. And it's recorded on his tomb in the floor of the abbey uh, what is purported to be his, his last words. May heaven's richest blessing come down on everyone who will help to heal the land of Africa. And uh, it seems to me, sir, you're part of that blessing, and we thank you and, and wish you strength. Well, thank you. <laughs> may, I just, uh, may I just say, Mr. James, being I was much too modest, to say that actually the International Peace Academy has part of its origin, gets a lot of its support and inspiration from this very city. I think somewhere here in the audience we probably have uh, Mr. And Ms. Mr. Stan and Mrs. Marta Platt, who were the original people who helped a lady called Ruth Young, based in Philadelphia, to found the International Peace Academy and have it registered here in the state of Minnesota. We also have somewhere here in the audience Priscilla Goldstein, who is also a member of our, of our, of our board of, trustee, of trustees. And of course, you had the chance to hear from Mr. James Binger, our chairman. So we owe a lot to this city and to this state. I say to you, thank you very much.